This is the Mathematics Education Podcast from MathEdPodcast.com. Welcome to the Math Ed Podcast. My name is Sam Otten from the University of Missouri, and with me today is Dr. Charles Hohensi, who's an assistant professor in the School of Education at the University of Delaware. Charles, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me on, Sam. No problem. We're going to be talking about Charles' recent work that was published in the Journal for Research in Mathematics Education, and that was focusing on relationships between prior knowledge and new learning. But, uh, Charles, I always like to start a little bit at the beginning, um, going back in your math ed career, and I was wondering about your graduate school experience and where you got your Ph.D. Uh, I got my Ph.D. at San Diego State University. I uh, was a a math teacher in San Diego and the school was basically a mile away from San Diego State and I had no idea that there was a math ed program there but like most teachers I decided to get my masters and uh, my first instructor was Chris Rasmussen Mm. and that was a great experience it was a learning theories class opened my eyes to a whole new world he encouraged me to, to get my PhD and then he was the one that actually introduced me to Joanne Lovato. She had a project going on and uh, needed a, a teacher to help her out. So that started our relationship, and she became my advisor for my master's degree, and then uh, transitioned to being my advisor for my PhD. Um, and I did my whole research assistantship with her. So she's been a, a huge influence on my development as a researcher and a, as a scholar. Obviously, I owe her a lot. And she's still my mentor today, so that Mm. one experience of teaching at a school close to San Diego State really changed the whole direction of my life and, you know, transitioned to making mathematics education a really important part of my life. Mm -hmm. But you've gone to the completely other corner of the country, now you're up in the Northeast at the University of Delaware. Which is a really great place. I, I feel very supported here and love working with my colleagues so that's worked out really well and look forward to working here for a long time yeah great your research centers on this idea of backward transfer so i know we'll get into that some more and it's really at its root is the idea of students having prior knowledge and then students engaging in new learning and then looking at the relationship about that how that new learning relates to the prior knowledge So what do you see as the relationships between prior knowledge and new learning? And what was it that initially drew you to this topic as a research focus? The way this idea kind of started, uh, Joanne had some data that she had collected with some school-aged children. She was teaching them about quadratic functions. And she did a study where she taught them about quadratic functions. She had some lessons that she was developing, and then she gave students a pre and post test to see what they had learned. And on the pre and post test, she'd put a linear functions task just as a, an additional task or a distractor task so that the, the whole interview wouldn't be just about quadratic functions. And what we noticed was that students in her study did very well on that task in the pre-interview before the quadratic functions instruction. And then after the interview, a number of them got really confused on this linear functions task, even though the intervention 
the instruction had been about quadratic functions. So that was kind of the germ mm. for thinking about this relationship between prior knowledge and new learning. Uh, I did some research to kind of look to see if there's anything out there that looks like that. And uh, one of the ideas that came out was that in language learning, there's something similar where um, researchers have found that if you learn your second language, often that impacts your first language ability. So it might affect your performance. Mm -hmm. So you might talk a little bit differently, um, enunciate the words differently, or something that's a little different that a native speaker might pick out because you've learned the second language. Or even mm -hmm. you might comprehend the first language differently. So in that context, that research, they call that backward transfer. So that was interesting, this idea mm -hmm. of something, this kind of backward transfer idea. And that really connects with the research that Joanne was doing because she was looking at the relationship between prior knowledge and new learning, but in a different way. Um, she's looking at transfer of learning, and the way she defines that is learning in one context, and then how does that influence thinking about a novel task? So I think about that as a forward direction. So you learn something, and then mm -hmm. in the future, or on a future task, something you haven't seen before, or done before, how does that influence your learning? So I thought what could be happening here is that this uh, unusual case that we discovered, maybe what happened in that case is that the student learned something new and then instead of looking at how that influences future learning, how does it then influence students' prior ways of reasoning? So that mm -hmm. was kind of the, the idea for my thinking about backward transfer and looking at when you learn something new, what happens to your other prior knowledge? Uh, one mm -hmm. other thing, I'll, uh, one other metaphor I'll give um, is if you were driving a, a boat on a lake, you could be focusing forward what's coming next. That's kind of like what a lot of our instruction does and a lot of our learning theories do is we look forward. What are the learning trajectories forward? What is, mm -hmm. How do we build on our prior knowledge forward? But then you could also look backwards on a boat, you could look backwards and see all the churning water that's, you know, left in the wake. Mm -hmm. So what I want to think about is what happens to the prior knowledge? What are the ripple effects outward to other knowledge that you already have that might be impacted by this new learning? Yeah. Yeah, I do think it's very interesting. Um, and so this became the topic of your dissertation, mm -hmm. and then you've published some things before, so I know one that I've seen was your um, 2014 article in Mathematical Thinking and Learning, but then recently you just had the JRME brief article called Teacher's Awareness of the Relationship Between Prior Knowledge and New Learning. So in this JRME piece, you're bringing teachers into the mix, and what was the goal that you had for that JRME piece, and then who were the participating teachers and the data that you collected? Yeah, so the goal was to bring teachers into to start thinking about how teachers can inform this idea. The first study I did was with students, and it was an ex in an experimental setting. I could control the instruction. So I was kind of interested in seeing what happens in the classroom, and I thought one interesting way to gather that information would be just to ask teachers. And then I was also interested in seeing the degree to which they might or might not be aware of this? Are they even paying attention to this? Is it something that they're 
thinking about when they're teaching. So trying to get information from them about what they're seeing in the classroom and also trying to understand if it's even on their radar, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So I collected interview data. I interviewed uh, eight teachers. I decided to go for four math teachers, four science teachers, because the context that I did my research in was in a distance time function context. So I thought, hmm, I wonder if there's overlaps between what happens in science and what happens in math. So I interviewed four math and science teachers. And the interviews themselves, I tried to start out very general and somewhat abstract because I didn't want to lead the teachers. So I started out with questions that were asking in a more general way if teachers, um, when they teach something new, do they ever notice that the student's prior knowledge is somehow influenced in some way, either productively or unproductively. And I kind of expected that by asking a very general question, it'd be hard for teachers to situate their thinking in a context and come up with examples. So I plan to kind of get progressively more direct in my questioning. So that was the first part of the interview. The second part of the interview, I gave the teachers some topics to sequence in a way that they normally teach those topics. And then we went and talked about the specific topics and said, oh, you, you teach, uh, let's say, linear functions after you teach ratios and proportions. So have you ever seen a situation where you've taught linear functions and then when students went back to ratios and proportions, there was something there that had changed in some way or the way their thinking had changed? And so that second part was a little more contextualized. And then the third part of the interview, I gave them a transcript where we read um, a very specific example of a student who reasoned one way on one transcript and then after an intervention reasoned a completely different way and used that as a context to talk about, have you ever seen something similar to that? So it was a three-part interview where, you know, asking the teachers if they've ever had any experiences like that. Yeah, and I really appreciate it in the paper how it did go through those different phases of focusing on the idea in general or that relationship in general between knowledge and new learning, um, but then tying it to specific mathematical content, which I think is also interesting to read about, and it could be interesting for researchers who are thinking about taking something on in this area to have specific mathematical topics that they might focus on. I want to draw from that, and I think that's informative for other people to, to see additional topics that where this phenomenon might be playing out. So so then to um, get you to think across the interviews, what were some of the key ideas that you found in talking to these teachers about the ideas? And maybe we can start with, um, what did you see the teachers talking about with regard to the knowledge and learning in general? Well, they, they had a lot of difficulty kind of getting where I was coming from. So I could tell that this is not something that's typically really focused on. They would give me information that was related. A lot of it had to do with the more forward transfer idea. Um, mm -hmm. So for example, they would say, well, what I have noticed is that when we start a new topic, students will apply what we learned before in this new context. Or they'll say, I noticed that they don't do that. 
So they're really paying attention to whether students are taking that prior knowledge and using it in a new context. And for me, mm -hmm. that's what I would call forward transfer. You're taking your mm -hmm. prior knowledge and now you're bringing it over to a new situation. So that was one either misunderstanding or it was the way that they were understanding me. Um, another thing they would do is they would talk about the connections that students were making. So they would say that we did something new and then what students noticed was that something they had done before was similar and so they made a connection. Or they said, I wanted them to make the connection, but I didn't see them making the connection. So they were focusing on the relationship between prior knowledge and new learning, but I wouldn't either call that transfer if you're making the connection, at least the way that I'm defining it, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm actually looking for, does the prior knowledge, the way the students are reasoning, has that changed in some way? As opposed to just kind of seeing, oh, there's similarities across. Mm -hmm. I would see that more, I would call that more making connections or making associations. Yeah, I think to me, I, I agree with you because making a connection is almost like a new piece of knowledge that itself connects to other pieces of knowledge. Right. And I think what you're after more is that the knowledge itself was changed or shaped in a new way or right. their skills or something actually changed themselves. That's right. Something, something's different. And in the instances that I've seen, most of them happen somewhat unconsciously. So they don't even realize that something's changed. They just end up doing things differently. They get confused. Or in some ways they do better, but they still don't really seem to be like a somewhat um, under the radar thing that a person experiences. So those were some of the ways that it revealed to me what they were paying attention to and it revealed to me that I don't think that they're really looking very carefully at this idea. But then once I gave the teachers the illustrative example that seemed to really help them a lot. So we read the example most teachers then said something like, oh, yeah, no, I've seen this a lot. We have this. We ha you know, this happens all the time. This just happened the other day. Still, there were teachers who had some difficulty coming up with examples. So even, you know, having this example and feeling like, yeah, I think this happens a lot. It was hard for them to come up with specific examples. But it did certainly prompt a number of examples from a number of the teachers. Mm hmm and so what were some of the um, findings that you had with regard to specific topics? So um, some of the ones that I reported in the, in the journal, students, when they learned about linear functions and then learned about exponential functions after, they would often then, like the slope defines a constant um, sum that keeps getting added onto a function for linear functions versus in an exponential function, you have a constant product. The function grows by a constant product. So after students learned about exponential functions and learning about this constant multiplier or constant product that defines an exponential function, they would then go back to linear functions and start thinking about the slope as being a constant product as opposed to being something that a function grows by a constant additive amount. An example from science that um, I didn't report in the journal article um, was that when science teacher taught students about the moles to mass conversion or mass to moles conversion, students mm -hmm. could do that. 
Then once they got into stoichiometry, where they're looking at chemical reactions, then they would have to do some moles-to-mass conversions or mass-to-moles conversions, and they would have a lot of difficulty. Because of this added idea of stoichiometry, all of a sudden this moles-to-mass conversion was something they started to struggle with. Mm. Um, another one that's in the journal was when students learned about complex fractions, they got proficient at being able to simplify complex fractions. Then they would get into unit rate, and then um, when they went back to complex fractions, they would start thinking that they had to have a denominator of one in all the fractions. So that kind of got them confused again. So in every case, it turns out that it was always a confusion. Um, mm. And I don't want to um, emphasize that that's the only thing that I think happens, because in my dissertation study, um, the goal was to see if we could think about the instruction in a way and design activities in a way that promote um, a productive form, sort of eliminate these unproductive forms and maybe even pr promote something productive. So mm -hmm. that's where I think a lot of the power lies in this. It's not just that here's these effects that happen and oh well, but maybe there's something that we can do proactively if we understand this idea better that we can um, design instructional tasks that we can leverage at least um, minimize unproductive effects, but maybe even leverage this idea and have a productive influence. So if we teach something new, then maybe it can even enhance someone's prior knowledge of some other topic um, to mm -hmm. some degree. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and really the, the ones you were mentioning about the confusions coming from the new learning, um, those were as reported by the teachers, right? So mm -hmm. it's kind of like the teachers, through these interviews, the ones that they were recollecting and sharing and talking about, happen to be confusions, but it doesn't mean that in reality there's more confusion than something else. That's true. And in, and in fact, I think sometimes something that's unproductive is might be a necessary thing. So for instance, if a student is learning, let's take the complex fractions idea, maybe there's something about complex fractions that they haven't fully unpacked yet, and this unproductive or quote-unquote unproductive influence might actually be raising an issue that if is addressed or if they have a chance to think about it further could illuminate their understanding a little further about complex fractions say for instance i guess the, yeah the whole idea is that it's these we don't understand you know what the reason is for these effects and whether they're productive or unproductive is still very much an open question yeah, and that goes to the idea that confusion when it arises in math classes is not necessarily a bad thing. Mm -hmm. That having confusion arise just gives you a chance to actually, as a teacher, respond to it, work on it, and try to help exactly. the students through it. Exactly. Yeah. My guest is Charles Hohensi from the University of Delaware, and we're talking about his article on the relationship between prior knowledge and new learning, which is in Volume 47 of JRME. And I wanted to share uh, or ask you about some things that I've heard just being in math departments and being in grad school with uh, mathematics PhD students and things. In this paper, a lot of what came up from the teachers were confusions uh, or student confusion that arose 
because their new learning was kind of interfering with their prior knowledge or they had learned something before, but now when they learned a new topic, it actually caused them to be a little bit more confused about that past thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that goes kind of opposite of what I've heard anecdotally from people in math departments where they would say, you learn a topic now and it might not really lock in or you might not feel like you've perfectly mastered it. But if you just go on to the next math class, like if you go on to complex analysis or if you go on to Calc 3, that once you do that, it'll actually make the previous math class seem easy or seem like really obvious. Mm -hmm. So they say once you get to abstract algebra 2, abstract algebra 1 seems really easy and obvious. Mm -hmm. And so that one to me is like saying the new learning makes the previous learning just really solid and obvious and easy and clear. But the teachers were reporting more examples of the new learning actually making the prior knowledge kind of confused or more shaky. Mm -hmm. So, like, how do you, having thought about this a lot more than me, how do you make sense of those two things? Well, first of all, if it's, I think what I'm understanding is that the people that are reporting this are feeling a sense of greater understanding as opposed to feeling like, oh, that prior stuff was actually very simplistic this is much more complex. I'm surprised that I thought that was complex because this Mm -hmm. is much more complex. To me, that, like making a qualitative distinction between that was less difficult than I thought, doesn't seem like that would necessarily translate to reasoning in a different way. But if it was the person thinking, wow, I have a much better understanding of that basic principle now that I've learned this more advanced principle, then I would definitely think that's a case of backward transfer. And I think, this is just a hypothesis, but someone who's at a more advanced mathematical level is probably going to make those kinds of connections because it's part of their exploration versus, say, a 7th or 8th grader. It's going to be, I think, harder for them to make those connections. There's probably a greater chance of confusion. They're just, they're not seeing the big picture. They don't have a really long background in mathematics and it might or might not be something that they're really interested in at the moment Mm -hmm. so i think in a say grade school environment i would predict more unproductive opportunities versus someone who's really at an advanced level they might Mm -hmm. be making a lot more connections so i could see that there might be more naturally occurring productive influences as all these ideas are coming together and you're kind of really, you know, your thinking is growing by leaps and bounds and a lot of those connections are being made. So I don't know, Mm -hmm. that's just how I would think about it off the top of my head. Yeah, it does seem to make sense. Um, And I go back to this again about how in, in the article that you had, it was really, you know, picking the teacher's brains about what they've seen here. And it could also be for teachers that the stuff that they're more likely to remember and talk about in an interview might be the confusions Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. as a teacher, those are really important. Like if you see your students having trouble with something or getting confused with something, or if you see students that have trouble with something that you thought they had learned previously, that seems like that would be memorable for a teacher. And so there might be these kind of hidden ones where the backward transfer was positive, Mm -hmm. like maybe a student that's in Algebra 2, maybe they're like, wow, I really feel more confident in my Algebra 1, or I'm, I feel like I understand Algebra 1 better because now I've pushed onward into Algebra 2. That might be there, but it might not be at the forefront of a typical teacher's mind because that's more like just 
business as usual or what you hope to happen and the, the confusions are maybe things that stick out more. Right, I totally agree. And, and we might, as teachers, might have almost a bias towards the negative things. We're not consciously looking for all these positive connections that people are making maybe. I'm not sure, but I think that's totally true that by getting the teachers as the you know the source of information right now, I'm getting one side of the story, and there could be other sides that. I mean, that's one of the things I'm interested in is going into the classroom and seeing what happens, as opposed to mm-hmm. having the teachers tell me, to find out some of these things. Maybe there are actually much more prevalent instances of productive backward transfer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that actually is something I wanted to ask you about. What are I mean, one thing that your Jeremy paper does is it really sets a stage or a launch point for further research um, for yourself or for others. Um, So for you personally, what are some next steps that you're taking in this line of research? My study was mostly situated in linear and quadratic functions. So I'm working now in trying to bring exponential functions into the picture and seeing if there's relationships between all three. So teaching exponential functions after linear functions and exponential functions after quadratic functions, looking for those relationships. Something I haven't mentioned yet, but that's a big part of what I'm thinking about too, is looking at underlying processes of um, backward transfer. So it's happening, but like, why is it happening? What are the mechanisms that are causing this? One of the things that Joanne looks at is she looks at how how noticing in the classroom, so in other words, what students notice and how what they notice um, emerges, how does that influence how students transfer their knowledge so forward? So mm-hmm. I also am looking at noticing to see if that's a process that underlies backward transfer. I think the process has to be something that's at a more general level than say, for instance, accommodation, because accommodation deals specifically with whatever you're looking at. And so there has to be something that's maybe more general that cuts across things or that someone could pull away from an instruction. Like, for instance, I always notice this thing, and they might take that to another context and try to notice the same kind of thing. Mm. Mm -hmm. So looking at processes is kind of another area of the research that I'm looking at. And then... I'm also interested in, you know, working with teachers to see how we could develop some of their their abilities to address or look for or think about backward transfer in their classrooms. Is this something that a teacher could do as a regular part of their class? Could they keep track of this? Could they modify the instruction or um, account for these influences in some way in their regular practice? So those are some of the ways that I kind of think of taking this further. Yeah, very exciting stuff. Um, now, actually, can we can put all that work aside, and I have one final question that I ask my guests, and that is uh, to imagine if you weren't in mathematics education and if you go back to San Diego and maybe even imagine you weren't a math teacher in the first place, um, what do you see yourself doing as a sort of hypothetical alternative career? Okay, if it's very hypothetical... And it Mm -hmm. can be kind of like dreaming. I wanted to, for a long time, be a film director. Mm -hmm. Um, When I first got my bachelor's degree, I went to film school after that for a year. And uh, that was first, I would say three or four years, that was my big focus, to be a film director. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I think today I probably would, if I know what I know today but wasn't in math ed, I probably would go more the documentary route because I oh, feel yeah. like interviewing students and collecting data and analyzing video and putting together transcripts is a lot like making a documentary. You're mm-hmm. still working with video, you're still capturing images, you're still trying to present kind of uh, your lens of how you're seeing the data to mm-hmm. an audience. So I think that would be something that would be fulfilling is working on documentaries and I'd be able to use a lot of the same uh, tools, I think, and seeing yeah. Uh, we love documentaries here in Columbia, Missouri. We have the True False Documentary Film Festival, mm. which is an amazing festival. Um, we get great films here. Most of the Oscar contenders are here, and all the directors come with the films and do oh, Q and A's and things. Awesome. That's awesome. It's yeah, it's really special. Um, and we're recording this in between the time when the Oscar nominees were announced, but the Oscars have not actually happened yet. So, do you have any picks for best director this year? You know, I do not really keep track of currently what's going on in film it's like i don't know it's well for one thing this job you know it's just so <laughs> busy that i don't know one of my favorite film directors is pt anderson and i know he has something mm-hmm. that might be i'm not sure if it's considered for this academy award cycle that would be somebody that i would i'd be interested in you know whenever that his film comes out i'm interested in seeing that so very cool. Well, thanks so much, though. I'm glad that you do have your career going in math education. Uh, thanks so much for taking the time out of the busy schedule to speak with us and, and talk about your ideas. Well, thanks for talking to me about a topic I really love talking about.